Hi everyone, welcome to Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus. Today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Richard Schwartz. He's a medical director of Long Island Jewish Medical Center, which is the second largest tertiary hospital in the Norfolk Health System. He's going to be talking to us about his experiences with COVID-19 in New York. So, let's get right into it. Okay, first question. What jobs does your role as medical director encompass? Well, as medical director, I'm responsible for the day-to-day uh, quality and efficiency of medical care within the hospital. Uh, basically, all medical activities report up to me. Um, I'm responsible to make sure that things function efficiently and safely with a high degree of quality. Okay, thanks. So what did a day in the life of doctors during the height of COVID-19 in your hospital look like? Well, uh, our hospital is a pretty big hospital to begin with. It has 583 beds. We are part of the Northwell system, which is a system of 24 hospitals. And as you mentioned, uh, my hospital is the second largest within that system. Um, When COVID began, it erupted rather quickly, rather suddenly. And we went from very few people coming in with COVID to the overwhelming uh, uh, majority of the patients coming in with COVID. Um, because we are in Queens, which is uh, which was the epicenter of the COVID uh, infestation, the uh, hospitals around us were quickly inundated. Community hospitals in our area got swamped, and we were asked to take on an extraordinary number of patients. So although, as I mentioned, our hospital has 583 beds, our census swelled to over 900 patients. We had to get very creative and put patients in places we ordinarily wouldn't. We used conference rooms and offices for patient care. We doubled up uh, patients, two to a room, which ordinarily had one. Fortunately, since children were not significantly affected by this virus at that time, we were able to take over space in our adjoining children's hospital. So we had three floors in the children's hospital that we could use to put patients in as well. So we, uh, we were bursting at the seams and uh, putting patients uh, everywhere. Uh, And eventually, approximately 85% of the patients in the hospital were COVID patients. Okay, wow. That's pretty crazy. So, what were some of the biggest problems that you faced when you were dealing with COVID-19? Well, um, of course, this was back in early March. Uh, We've come a long way since then. But the initial challenge was that we did not have testing available. Uh, the, uh, The PCR testing that we now have was simply not available. What testing we had was very restricted, and it took days to get a result back. And there was questions as to how, there were questions as to how accurate those tests were. So that was our initial challenge. The second challenge is we knew so little about this disease, we really didn't know what to do before. We weren't quite sure what the best way to treat it was. There were all sorts of things that were suggested, using chloroquine, using azithromycin, using steroids, using various types of biologicals, and nobody knew the answer. Um, and the patients got very sick very quickly, and we were scrambling trying to figure out what to do to take care of them and what to do to protect our staff, because, of course, we were quite concerned that our staff was at risk, and, in fact, early on, a number of our workers became infected with the virus. Okay, that's a really good insight. So what were some of the symptoms that the COVID-19 patients that you saw had? Well, the, the classic symptoms are shortness of breath, cough and fever. Uh, Those were the biggies. Uh, We did learn that that's not always the way it presents. We had people coming in complaining of abdominal pain and diarrhea who ultimately were shown to have COVID. 
but the typical was fever, shortness of breath, and cough. Um, and then the initial tests would show uh, a low number of lymphocyte white blood cells and fairly typical findings on x-ray or CAT scans of the chest. Okay, wow, that's pretty informative. So out of everything that happened during the COVID-19 pandemic, what surprised you most about how hospitals dealt with it? Well, again, belonging to a system as we do, um, we spent a lot of time moving patients between hospitals. Those hospitals that got swamped were relieved to some of their patients to other hospitals that were less busy. Uh, we have two community hospitals that are affiliated with my hospital, and between the two of them, we transported 800 patients to other hospitals in the area. So our, our ability to do that was uh, very important, very gratifying. We'd never done anything like that before, and it showed the, the benefits of being in a, in a multi-system hospital. Um, I can't say it surprised me, but it gratified me how people rose to the occasion. Uh, everybody came together. We had people working around the clock, day and night, uh, exposing themselves and their families to risk, but really pulling together uh, in dramatic teamwork fashion. We, uh, we had some very dedicated, very courageous people who uh, worked to the point of exhaustion without rest. That's pretty amazing. So in your hospital, what were some of the safety precautions that you took? Well, initially, we weren't sure. We weren't sure what was needed. Um, and there was a shortage of uh, the strongest types of masks, the N95 mask, which protects against uh, droplet, uh, against airborne, rather, uh, infection. So that's the kind of mask we want to use for TB. So first of all, we were getting conflicting recommendations. Do we need N95 masks or regular masks sufficient? The World Health Organization said regular surgical masks were sufficient. The CDC was recommending N95 masks because we weren't really sure what the mode of transmission was. So we did not have enough masks for everybody in the building. So initially we had to ration it. We had to keep the N95s for those people most likely to come into face-to-face -face contact with the patient, such as an anesthesiologist going to intubate a patient or a respiratory therapist. So there was some significant discomfort when people who wanted N95 masks couldn't get them because we didn't have enough. What we then did is we made sure that everybody in the hospital had regular surgical masks. And that turned out to be a good move because once we did that, once we had everybody wearing regular surgical masks, the incidence of infection amongst our staff dropped like a rock. So we had very few uh, in-house uh, infections once we started doing that. Okay, that's pretty informative. So what are some precautions that you would tell other hospitals to take when they're dealing with COVID-19? Well, the, there are three biggies. One is, again, the mask. And what we say is, and, and, and again, we didn't know this back then, but currently the CDC recommendations are as follows, that if you are less than six feet away from another person for more than 15 minutes, uh, that is potential for exposure, unless you are both wearing masks. Now, of course, it's hard to get a patient to wear a mask. So what we make sure is that we're wearing masks. And the other thing that we didn't do in the beginning, but that we do now, is you also need to protect your eyes because the COVID-19 can also uh, infect one through the mucous membranes of the eyes. Initially, we thought that just wearing regular eyeglasses was enough, but it's not because the infection can get around the eyeglasses. So now what we say is that if there's any patient who is suspected of having COVID-19, we wear a mask and either eye goggles or a face shield that protects you from anything entering the eyes or your nose or your mouth. 
The other thing that we do is incessant hand washing. We have hand washing and hand sanitizer everywhere. And basically, between every two patients, between everything that you touch, every time you've touched a, a water faucet or, or a piece of equipment, we wash our hands incessantly. Okay, wow. That's also pretty informative. So now we have a few questions that other people have sent in. And so one of them is, how do you believe that we can manage our resources better to deal with the pandemic in the future? Well, I think the first thing is that people need to understand that this may or may not come their way. So the first thing to do is to prepare for something that you hope won't, won't happen. And to me, the, the injury was used as a seatbelt. We all wear seatbelts, not because we know we're going to have a car accident, but because just in case we have a car accident, we want to be prepared for it. So what I would strongly suggest is that although we don't know whether it'll come to your area, you must prepare for it as though it were. Because if it does come, and if it erupts as rapidly as it do with us, you will not have time to ratchet up your preparations at that time. So you have to make sure you have enough ventilators. You have to make sure you have enough dialysis equipment because many of these patients develop kidney disease. You have to make sure you have enough personal protective equipment, which means masks, gloves, gowns, and eye protection. Many of these things have a long shelf life, so they can be stockpiled. Uh, and I would strongly suggest having them and hoping you never need to use them. But if you do need to use them, you will not have time to scramble and, and obtain them on short notice. Okay, wow. That's really good advice. So the next question is, how well do you believe that the media is portraying COVID-19 and its severity? Well, I think it's been very variable. Um, we had a reporter um, from the New York Times named Sherry Fink, who is a, a very experienced medical writer. And she came to our facility and spent hours with us. And her reporting was extremely accurate. Many others had little glimpses and they didn't realize that, that it's not the same every place you go. And of course, our experience was about the, as, as bad as it could be. Other places weren't quite so bad. And some of the media uh, basically reported their own, their own experience as though it were typical. And the fact is they did not always get it right. Many people who were not actually in the thick of things uh, downplayed it. They didn't understand what we were talking about. Because remember that most patients with COVID-19 do okay. Probably about 80% of the patients with COVID-19 don't wind up in the hospital. We saw the 20% that did wind up in the hospital. Um, but people need to be aware of the worst case scenario if they are to pre prevent it from happening to them. So the media, I don't think, always got the whole picture right. That's really interesting. So adding on to that, if you were part of the media, how would you like this pandemic to be portrayed? Well, again, I think I would state that, you know, we don't want to necessarily so, so panic throughout everybody. We don't want to say this is definitely going to happen to you. I think we have to explain this could happen to you. And if it does, it happens rapidly and it happens dramatically. Uh, and so you have to be prepared. You have to be expected. Uh, you have to be prepared for what might happen. And, and again, another analogy I use is we all carry spare tire in the car, right? Why do we do that? You know, I haven't had a flat tire for years, but I would not leave home without a spare tire because if I do have a flat, I'll be stuck without it. So people need to be prepared. Among other things, you need to have the ability to expand your facility. So if you have a 583-bed hospital and you're suddenly expected to take care of 900 patients, how are you going to do that? So people need to have all sorts of battle plans and contingency plans where they think, 
what if, what if, what if? How are we going to deal with this if this goes down? Okay, wow. That's a really good practical insight. So the next question that we have is what advice do you have for places like Arkansas and Florida where the pandemic is now starting to ramp up? Well, again, the first thing is take it seriously. Do not assume this is a passing fad. Do not assume that just because it hasn't gotten terrible yet that it won't. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Prepare for the worst. Hope for the best. The uh, we often talk about having the appropriate equipment, but the other big thing that I, that I think often gets overlooked in the media when they ask about, do you have enough ventilators? Do you have enough personal protective equipment? Yeah, we do. What we often didn't have enough of is, is the people. We didn't have enough experienced physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists. Uh, these people worked ungodly hours to the point of exhaustion. You can have enough ventilators and not have enough people who know how to run the ventilators. Managing a ventilator is not an easy thing. So make sure that you have people who are trained, know how to get extra people when you need them and where. And again, if you can develop cooperation with other local facilities to where the people who are getting hit hardest can turn to other colleagues for help, that's very important because very few hospitals can withstand this sort of thing by themselves. Okay, wow. And so the next question actually adds on to that, and it asks, what were the most important things that you had to manage during this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, uh, information and communication is always the first casualty in a crisis. So one of the things that we did very well, which I highly recommend, is people have got to be up to date with the information, with the statistics, with the, with the recommendations. So in this era of Zoom and, and Microsoft Teams, there are a lot of ways to communicate very effectively. And we would have daily, daily, and sometimes several times a day, meetings where people who had the most up-to-date information, people who were communicating with the CDC, people who were communicating with colleagues in Korea and Italy and China would be able to give us up-to-date information because it changed day to day to day. Uh, I, I don't think that change will be as rapid going forward as it was with us because I think we have a little bit more knowledge now. But uh, just last week, there was an article that came out from the United Kingdom about the efficacy of steroids. We were very much up in the air about whether steroids were helpful. So being up to date, gathering that information, sorting out the reliable information from the garbage, because there's a lot of garbage out there. A lot of people have opinions without necessarily having the information. So gathering reliable information and then disseminating it in such a way that everybody knows this is what we know, this is what we don't know, this is what we've tried. You know, don't reinvent the wheel. We tried this, it worked, it didn't work. So uh, uh, gathering and sharing information accurately, repeatedly, and promptly is extremely important. Okay, well that wraps it up. Thank you, Dr. Schwartz, for these amazing insights. Okay, everyone, I hope you enjoyed that interview. We're going to be continuing with normal content and more interviews on Infectious, your guide to life during coronavirus.